Hey folks, it's Nick. Just wanted to let you know this is the second part of a two-part episode. If you haven't had a chance, you'll definitely want to check out the first part, which focuses on Virgil Reynolds, the man behind the Dusty Rhodes character. This episode, we are going to focus more on the myth and legend of Dusty Rhodes, the American dream. But pretty much everything will be the same, except for the fact that the next thing you hear will not be the dulcet tones of the Hell Yeah Babies, but my terrible, terrible voice. I apologize in advance. Primarily, I think, people who don't think about wrestling beyond, like, at the, not that we're cool, but, like, as ner aren't as nerdy about wrestling as we are, I think that's the best way to put it, don't, they think of him as this, like, star from the 70s and 80s, and they kind of know he was a booker, right? But they don't think about him primarily, his his influence on the industry is, is as this booker, this guy that kind of took over the entire left half of the wrestling industry at a time when it was splitting in two, like where you had the NWA and you had WWF separate. He kind of represented backstage and to a certain segment of the audience. He represented Southern wrestling to everybody, I think. And he represented the NWA as like a former champion and stuff like that to a lot of people, but to very few people. And this to me is the primary driver between the dislike between the two, or I don't even think Dusty disliked Vince, but the like animosity Vince had towards him was that he was a booker during a very hot era of professional wrestling for W for the NWA in a, in a time where like Vince had to actively destroy the business to stop the NWA from catching up to him. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think Vince was concerned that Dusty was ahead of him in some ways. I mean, Starcade uh, didn't have the reach of WrestleMania necessarily, but it certainly happened before WrestleMania. And that, that 83 Starcade show was famously Dusty's audition to be the booker for Crockett. So I think that when Vince saw Starcade, I mean, I don't know that he actually watched it because I, I think famously Vince, you know, doesn't watch much that isn't his own show. Uh, but when he heard about it and saw the buzz in the industry and stuff, I, and, you know, I'm sure that he was maybe a little concerned. And I think that, that that was like the jab to the face that pissed him off. You know what I mean? That that was that, that was that one little punch that the guy, that the other fighter got in that like suddenly got you seeing red. And I think that he definitely saw Dusty Rhodes as not an equal, but as a rival, you know what I mean? As someone that he had to prove that he was better than and smarter than and more connected and uh, more uh, patient even than, you know what I mean? I think that a lot of Vince's strategy in the WrestleMania years from WrestleMania one to, I mean, Crockett's dead, you know, right around the time of uh, WrestleMania four, so, but I think in that kind of window there, in that three or four year window, I think that Dusty really was Vince's kind of primary rival, more so than like, you know, David or Jim Crockett Jr. or, or any of the actual leadership folks. It really was Dusty because Dusty was the creative mind and Dusty was the auteur in the same way that Vince was the auteur for the WWF. And they were both thinking along the same lines. They were both thinking nationally televised super show. And I think that it's very dangerous to tell Vince McMahon or to make Vince McMahon think that you're in direct competition with him. Like that's, he is going to see someone assuming direct competition with him as, as carte blanche to just dance on that person's grave after he's done burying them after he's done killing. Yeah. There's, there's the, the, the very famous story that Vince tells of, uh, Ted Turner calling him and saying, I'm in the wrestling business. Exactly. Saying, I'm in the sports entertainment business. And you see that like when he says it, he kind of wants to convey to you, I gave that motherfucker a chance to live and he came back at me. Like mm -hmm. that idea that like I want, and I think that's kind of how he felt about Dusty is he's like, you made me destroy all of this stuff because you were competition for me. Like you made me consolidate and completely destroy other companies and do really vicious backhanded business. Nothing, nothing where like he's secretly having people murdered or anything like that, or even stuff like the one the, the, I think it was Lanny Poffo wanted, um, not Lanny, Angelo Poffo wanted somebody like Randy and them to come over and fight another company. Like I, I, 
I, I'm trying to think if there's a specific example of there is a specific oh example. like an outlaw group coming into the IWA territory kind of thing yeah, yeah. To chase them out yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and then like that that idea like he was like I didn't want to do I wanted to do all the but like the the shit he did with like buying up W uh, WCW's airtime of of take threatening cable companies with if you don't take this we're going to shut down. We're not going to give you WrestleMania. If you don't take Survivor Series, which we're doing the same night as Starcade, I think it was. Like, we are trying to... Where he actively tried to fuck over the other people and wasn't just doing being a better businessman, I think in large part was fueled by his fear of a guy like Dusty who, like, say what you will about, like, the success of the Crockett promotion in terms of like their financial success that wasn't a function of dusty doing a bad job it was a function of them not knowing how to run a business and i think like vince saw dusty as frightening in a way that he knew for a fact he was a better businessman than the crockett's right but he didn't think he was as creative or he was on that that and that way they may have been on the same level and that's why he was so vicious in his business tactics to overthrow that to basically put them out of business or come as close as he possibly could given at the time relatively limited resources yeah definitely if you look at period interviews about the way that he, uh he being vince uh the way that vince would talk about crockett and would talk about nwa wrestling like he would bury them just over being like too violent over the blood over like everything that was distinct about Dusty's style Vince would always call that out when he was saying what he didn't like about quote-unquote other wrestling or that what made him better than quote-unquote other wrestling it was always like all the stuff that Dusty does that's not appropriate that's not family entertainment this is family entertainment which is ironic like I said because like Dusty was already moving in that direction before Vince even bought the WWF from his father. Like in some ways, Dusty was the forerunner of Vince, not business-wise, as you were saying, but creatively. Dusty was kind of the proto or er Vince McMahon character. And I'm just imagining like a young Vince McMahon watching those Superstar Graham and Dusty Rhodes matches, you know, in, in you know, in Madison Square Garden and thinking like, this is good shit. Like this is where the wrestling business needs to go. And then, you know, 10 years later, he, or a little less than that, 10 years later, here he is. And he's saying like, Oh geez, that guy who I thought typified where we needed to go, he's on the other team. So I need to prove why my model, which was inspired by his model is in fact better. Like it's all just, it's, it's all marketing and personal insecurity, which, which do tend to go hand in hand. I Especially guess. with the McMahons. Yeah. Yes, yeah, certainly, right? They do a lot of charity work, Nick. Did you know that they do charity work? A lot of it for cancers, various cancers, many cancers. <laughs> for the kids, the women, the men even, I think. All the cancers. <laughs> um, they, they, none of this is to say that Dusty was perfect. Dust, dusty finishes are, uh, for a very long time in particular, were real scourge on the business. I, I personally fucking hate dusty finishes no fake title change is the worst way you can get the fans around no question and i think that there is there was some major drawback that one being the number one one of the dusty style right that the baby faces always have to win that especially if the baby faces are in dusty's orbit uh either politically backstage or on television yeah which usually went hand in hand also. Yeah, of course. You're not going to hang out with a guy on television to give him that rub if you're not actually friends with him backstage. Like, what the hell's the point? Well, and, when, and when it came to giving people the rub, like, I don't think people begrudged Dusty standing next to Magnum TA because I think there was some kind of, you know, whatever that Dusty was trying to pass the torch. Like, here's this tough, rugged, handsome motherfucker, and Dusty's going to, you know, mentor him and, and, and kind of help break him in. But when Dusty goes the next week and stands next to the Road Warriors, then people are like, hmm, who's really rubbing who here? Yeah, it, he he is not a perfect person. I, I think we've made him out to be kind of a, a myth. But, like, there is a person underneath that. And I don't want to say he was, like, insecure. I, and this is something we hinted out earlier with the, it's not for you, that's not for you, baby, that's for somebody else. Like, that idea is what I think people associate with 
dusty. And that's what happens when you don't get that perfectly right every time. When you either get rubs from people who shouldn't be giving you rub, like when you're making it out to be that you're giving them the rub. Good rub, bad rub. Yeah, exactly. Like like the Road Warrior uh, Magnum TA dichotomy is, is part of it. But also this idea that like certain people didn't get pushed because Dusty didn't think that they deserved it instead, or not deserved, but like... Well, I mean, think of like Sam Houston, like Dusty jobbed out Sam Houston because he was married to Baby Doll. You know what I mean? Because Dusty didn't believe that a mid-carder should be married to a main event valet, so he made their lives hell and ran them out of the territory. Which is like, that's, yeah, exactly. Like, not a great guy when it came to that. Like, that is the part where, like, I feel like with everyone could see straight through Vince's bullshit directly to his soul. And we're just like, that is black as night. We're not, we don't fucking trust you at all. We're with Dusty. <laughs> I think there is a tendency to lionize him as this, this one of the knights that, like, stood against the oncoming our orc army of the WWF. And in reality, like he had his own shit and he had a lot of problems and there was stuff that like, if they would have figured out something for stone cold, there's a pretty good chance that we're talking about WCW right now. Like if they could have figured out a way to use Steve Austin or Chris Jericho or any of them, that doesn't necessarily dusty's fault, but like this idea of like, you created a situation, you created a world where like people, it isn't a meritocracy. You changed that idea, and, and, and although we may de- disagree with the de- what they defined as merit, define as merit, I feel like the WWE, in the sense that it was professional, was much more of an actual, honest to god meritocracy because they're willing to throw a bunch of shit at the wall and see what sticks. Where it felt like Dusty was trying to hit the shit directly at the target and hit it most of the time, but when he didn't, there's just shit on the wall. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that it, it, he was someone who I think also ran hot and cold in terms of self-confidence that like that you can tell there are runs where Dusty is like really, really feeling himself. Like you, there really is a bipolarism to his booking. There's manic periods and there's depressed periods and like they're very, very well defined. Uh, but I, I think part of that too is like that he asked the heels consistently to really carry the show because as we said a few times it was always really about the baby faces shining and looking tough and, and kind of always getting the last laugh and the heels if they won it was only ever by cheating uh you know what i mean but i, I think we like got to the point where maybe as he burned out a little bit as a writer he also was starting to reap what he had sown with his heel performers being burned out as well. Like famously Arn and Tully, right? Like would Tully Blanchard for a two or three year period would happily tell anybody who was in the room, all the nasty things about Dusty Rhodes they would like to hear because he felt that while Dusty was very good at getting Dusty and Dusty's friends over. And while Dusty was very good at writing storylines of a certain kind, he wasn't someone who appreciated the full scope of everything and keeping that whole show together in a long-term sense and say all the nasty things you want to about Vince McMahon. I've probably said most of them, but that's something that he has always done right, is that the machine always moves forward. Like, even if stuff goes horribly awry, they just move on and do the next thing. Like, whereas where you said, the times Dusty stuff went bad either finishes that were rejected or things that were too grandiose that, that blew up in everybody's faces like even Shockmaster, you know what i mean just like a stupid silly example but like he fell right on his arse yeah he right on his fucking arse <laughs> yeah absolutely though but it's like dusty's failures were spectacular and easy to point and laugh at because he was because like i said he did the one piece of the vision thing that he lacked was the organizational discipline that Vince McMahon had, both in terms of storytelling and just general discipline. Like, the, like you know, Jim Crockett Promotions maybe could have lasted another year or two if not for so much airplane fuel. You know what I mean? It was the discipline part that was missing, and I think that that really came back to haunt him. And when you compare him and Vince, like you said, Vince's 
faults are all very clear and very well-defined or many of them are very clear and very well-defined. Whereas like Dusty, it's someone where if you look at him from several angles, there's a couple of angles from which, like you said, he's very easy to lionize. There's also several angles from which he's very easy to, to make into one of the real heels of an era and someone who maybe, you know, was partially responsible for wrestling heading into the tailspin that was the early 90s. Like, I think those things are equally true. And I think that that kind of speaks to, like I said, that Dusty himself was someone who got a lot of aspects of the business really, really well. But the aspects of the business that he didn't get, those were the things that Vince McMahon was the best at. And that's maybe part of why Vince McMahon won. Yeah, that the he didn't see, and it's not a situation like Eric Bischoff or um, or even Vince, uh, or to much lesser extent Vince Russo, where like they were. I don't think Dusty would have. I think Dusty with a person who wasn't Vince McMahon, but it had a lot of Vince McMahon's skill set, but didn't have his um, raging insecurity that manifest as like hyper masculinity. Like, I think if he just had a normal manager kind of person, a Paul Ellering, but for him, like, I think you'd be looking at a different situation. Cause I don't think, I think Dusty had an ego, right? But I don't think that Dusty had the kind of ego that would have prevented him from being willing to, if he respected a person, accept their decisions. Does that make sense? Where like Vince makes the decisions period, unless you're giving him like $50 million to put on a show after you murdered a journalist, like outside of that, he makes all of the decisions where I think Dusty may have been not keen on delegating per se, but he did have this idea that like, this is a team and we all have to do this together. Where like Vince sees his, people on the people on television as his employees like we are a company that needs to get this done yeah definitely i think that like dusty failed the crockets to some degree and that his creative got very stale because of you know repeated finishes and kind of burning out the heels so they didn't want to play nice anymore and and and, playing I, I, and all that sorry and i, I do want to say magnum ta getting hurt is a seismic shift in the wrestling industry like it is one, it is maybe the biggest what if in wrestling history, as far as I'm concerned, because like that guy would have been money for decades. Um, right? I think I, I don't think I'm breaking new ground by saying Magnum TA would have been a huge, like supernova of a star. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think he was he was there to kind of take up the banner of somewhat traditional wrestling. Like he was a traditional Southern style baby face where like he was handsome for the ladies, but he was rugged and didn't take shit for the men. You know what I mean? He he definitely was in that mold of, of someone who was there to to pick up the NWA banner and run with it. Definitely. Yeah, and, and not having him there and not having it, especially as in the way they were building him towards that, really hurt him in terms of being able to keep the business fresh. Because, like, if you're telling those stories with a magnet, you're telling Dusty Rhodes stories with a good-looking guy who can actually work it's a completely different thing than Dusty. Like it is looking at it from a different perspective. It is like he, Magnum TA was making a choice to be that kind of person where Dusty, that was his best option. Does that make sense? And I, I think like they lost that. So when we say that it got stale, I think it is really important to emphasize Magnum TA was supposed to be the biggest star in the company, probably a year. He was on trajectory for like a year or two after. He was going to be the guy main eventing Starcade and stuff like that. Nick, it's almost like you're saying you don't think Nikita and Sting were as good. Nikita! <laughs> so what I, what I was starting to say a minute ago is, is that Dusty definitely failed the Crockets in several important ways or let them down in several important ways. However... Many of his failures were the direct result of them failing him by not providing him the support that he really needed, by not giving him the limits and the boundaries and the structure that he really needed. And it's like they didn't manage him. <laughs> exactly. It was like, you know, that there's that expression that like the left hand doesn't know what the right is doing. This is like a case of like the left hand is well it, it was uh, i guess this is a very stupid metaphor because it's not even a metaphor anymore but the left hand is writing the tv show 
and spending all the money. The right hand is just like covering payroll and, you know, putting things on their personal diners club card. <laughs> like there was just no connection whatsoever. Whereas it's like Vince, it's not just the right hand and the left hand. It's like the right hand and the left hand of the same person. Yeah. So it's like, I think that the collapse of, of JCP and the sort of, hegemony of the WWE that brought on the the early 90s sag was was in part Dusty's fault but most of the things that were his fault were also structural and institutional problems that the Crockett should have known better than but they weren't prepared to grow a regional family business into a national business and Vince McMahon had a very specific plan for doing that and was prepared to do it. So Crockett goes down in 88, right? And becomes essentially WCW at this point in terms of like our modern understanding of WCW, correct? Certainly. Absolutely. Yeah. Same roster, most of the same team. Yeah, definitely. And at what point does, because it kind of infamously, Dusty is told not to blade, right? And then fucking does it because he's Dusty and he doesn't give a shit and is fired. That's how he ends up in the WWF, right? Yeah, I mean, blading when you're told not to blade was a famous way to get out of your contract with Turner. Uh, you know, I mean, there was the, the King of the Road match, too, with uh, Dustin Rhodes and Blacktop Bully. I don't know that they were necessarily trying to get fired. But yeah, certainly, when there was that decree not to use the color, the kind of big FU of, of cutting yourself, especially in a way... And I think, I think the story is, too, that he did not take as much care to hide what he was doing in the way that wrestlers typically do on television. Like they're, you know, like he may have, uh, I always think of like Ric Flair, like blatantly <laughs> running on his stomach, not even covering his face, like getting at himself. You know what I mean? But I, I think that he had both bled when they had said not to bleed and that he had maybe not protected him getting the blood uh, very effectively. Because he, he couldn't do the Bret Hart of, oh, it was a hard way, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. No, it really... Uh... What you were saying with Ric Flair reminds me of WrestleMania 8, where he like stumbles around the ring and the cameraman is following him until like right before he starts blading because the director, I guess, I guess Kevin Dunn realizes and immediately switches the camera. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, no. And I think that, but that was a different era of of WCW. And that was a, a Jim Hurd decision, right? more or less as far as I understand it, but please correct me. Cause again, I'm not, a, I am not as in the like minutia of dusty Rhodes' career as some people would hope. <laughs> yeah. Heard was who was installed by Turner to kind of make uh, Jim Crockett promotions into WCW, like to turn it into, you know, the, the, this televised wrestling company that, that, that was going to be good programming. That was going to be an anchor for the network, but a, a big part of what Heard immediately began trying to do was was trying to force out some of the more entrenched people like he famously had a super antagonistic relationship with rick flair spartacus with a diamond earring and a, and a crew cut i think it was supposed to be. so from leaving wcw because he's an asshole but also the assholes that made him be an asshole kind of deserved it he ends up in wwf and um that's the one that i think most wrestling fans like from my part of the country like uh, you know the northeast became familiar with like we knew who dusty Rhodes was but like dusty Rhodes to me will always be a guy in polka dots for worse I was, i'm not gonna even say for better or worse for worse but i think like and, and th- this is like the culmination of what we talked about there was real and they wanted to make dusty feel like a joke more or less and they pretty much succeeded. Well, they, they were trying to uh, to use some already dated slang. I apologize. But uh, Vince McMahon just wanted to sun Dusty so hard. You know what I mean? The like, welcome to my company now. We were rivals in the past, but I won it. I'm the fucking boss and you work for me. So like, I think that on one hand, Vince McMahon appreciated who Dusty Rhodes was and was happy to have him working for him. But I think he was also happy to have him working yeah yeah it was not um good like i I think more so than you have with like a rick flair and stuff like that you totally get why the first chance out the fucking door dusty left like there was a real 
destruction and Cody's talked about it, uh, both shoot and, and kayfabe that like they gave his father, uh, they put him in polka dots. Like that's what they did to him to embarrass him and the Rhodes family, which we're not going to get into Cody and, and Dustin that much. Cause, uh, I could do an entire episode on both of those guys. But I I think that you see that animosity or not that animosity, but like Cody Rhodes should have been in world championship title feuds and he wasn't. And I don't think it was a coincidence that his last name was Rhodes. I I don't know how else to put it. I'm not being a conspiracy theorist. I think he was hurt by the legacy of his father, even though they look almost nothing alike and they have very different in-ring characters. There is this idea that like Vince just didn't, uh, he appreciated the money that Dusty could make and in the way that like it happens sometimes he took a lot of ideas from Dusty but almost felt I, I don't want to say ashamed but like that is kind of the dirty little secret of the McMahon thing and I think that's part of where that animosity comes from this idea that like I just don't like what you represent at such a level, it has permeated into my feelings towards you. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's a problem that Vince McMahon has always struggled with is I think that he's one of those people and there's many folks out there that people who are not his friends, I think he struggles to see them as people. You know what I'm saying? And and I think that's like a, and I'm not saying that that's just some crazy sociopathic Vince McMahon trait. I think that that trait is way more common than, uh, than, than people really understand. But I do think that for Vince McMahon, people who aren't in his inner circle, who aren't people he knows well and has a rapport with, I think that everybody else in the world just kind of represents things to him. And you see the way he treats performers on TV. Like you see the way Punk was treated at times. You see the way Nikki James was treated at times. There, that there's That people represent certain things. And when you represent something that Vince McMahon is annoyed with in the moment or pissed off with generally or doesn't believe in, you are going to see that played out through you on TV in ways that I'm sure are really difficult not to take personally. Yeah. Yeah. And he, I mean, almost immediately gets the, he's there for God, uh, two years, but it really doesn't feel like that. He just, I mean, he, this, like I said, the second he could get out of WWE, it felt like he was all the way gone and never even thought of coming back. You know what I'm saying? Like until obviously the, until WCW went down um, or as you describe in the notes, um, I don't know if this is a quote from somebody else, but what, what was it? Um, a coffin on roller skates. <laughs> that is a Tony Schiavone line. Yes. Uh, yeah. That is the most accurate description of WC like Perry WCW have ever seen. And, and what's weird with dusty is I, I may be in the minority on this. I think he was a very good part of the show as a commentator. I sincerely enjoy the, um, the like when it's working, the dichotomy between brain, Dusty and Tony Schiavone. And we talked about it a little bit during the brain episode that like, that's a booth that is like kind of underrated. It kind of works because they're such good professionals. Yeah, there's been much written over the last year about the dog shitness of three-man booths or three-person booths. Uh, but but I agree with you that that was one of the better ones we've ever seen. And it, it was because, like, you have... Two of the best characters in the history of wrestling. Help. Exactly. And one of them is chaotic good, and one of them is chaotic evil. And then you have lawful neutral Tony Schiavone in the middle of them, or maybe kind of lawful good. You know, I'd say lawful good, actually. He's yeah. No, and I think that's what's interesting about Shivani is that he the what worked about it was that you could understand how Dusty's goodness in the larger context of the industry would pull Shivani towards him when there was a disagreement. Like there was a really defined, like you said, chaotic good and chaotic evil. And that idea that like, that's what ample, they amplified each other in a way that was like, really, it might be the best three man. I think it is. I think it's the best three person booth in wrestling, which isn't like a long list, but like, I think it really works a lot better. It is clouded. Our opinion of it is clouded by the fact that he turned heel for some stupid fucking reason to join the NWO. Like there's a bunch of, to have one more ride glomming onto things. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so <laughs> the, the the late motif of uh, of the Road Warrior thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, he he had, but that is, I think, a really when you look back and you when you watch the old episodes, I think we have a we had a tendency to think of him his career dropping off the face of the earth after he went to WWF and things never were quite the same or not dropped off the face here, but never quite the same. And I think he really did an exceptional job as a commentator for a pretty long period that I think is one of, if is probably the most underrated aspect of his larger career. Yeah, definitely. I think that someone I'd compare him to as a color man, if you go back and watch some of the older UWF or mid South stuff is he's a lot like Bill Watts because it's the booker telling you what to think. But also doing it in a way that if you didn't know they were the Booker, they wouldn't be giving it away to you. Yeah, and he's he's very natural at, at and there's some great, like genuinely great, dusty moments of the part where then this is a shot they used to do that I used to love in WCW, where they had they had the booth far away, right? Oh, at the top of the ramp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But like in a way that was framed by the audience, it almost looked like when they do um the pre-show for the pay-per-views right Mm -hmm. there's i think it might be um no it is it is it is bash at the beach 1996 he does the thing where he explains how badly he's like we just want the match to start now but that's not how the show works and it's just this perfect like it was a moment where it's like yeah i do actually like want this the like he kind of explains why they're not having the main event at the beginning of the show in a way that's like super simple, but it like, oh, that's why you're good at this. Because you actually understand how to sell the match at the end of the show by telling us you want to see it right now. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I think that, you know, that especially once again, him being the chaotic good baby face, it's like that opportunity for he's not just explaining it. He's explaining it in a righteous manner. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like, oh, we want to get him. We want to... <laughs> exactly. We're going to show We're gonna show him who's boss. We're going to show him who the real wrestlers are and who the real cowards are. And it's one of those things where um, when he worked with Bobby, Bobby knew what he was working with in terms of talent. So Bobby gave a shit. Like, that's one of the things that worked best for me was that, like, Bobby clearly cared about what... Dusty had to say in a way that he wasn't just waiting for him to finish what the fuck he was talking about. Oh no, definitely. I think that one of the things that made Bobby really special and you saw it, I mean, it's most famously evident in his work with Gorilla Monsoon. Uh, but I think you can definitely see it when he was working with Dusty that he could really sell as a commentator, like that there was almost a match. Like even if you never saw him or, or he, even if you never saw he and Gorilla Monsoon, you like understood that there was a conflict between them and you understood that even though Keenan got the metaphorical thumb to the eye in the moment, like he might have his little clever line or he might have his moment, but at the end of the day, Monsoon was the more authoritative, wise person who you should listen to. And and we talked about this when we did kind of dream booths a couple of weeks ago with Keenan, but like that's what the heels don't do anymore is the heels don't sell for the the babyface commentator and when you do that you make it seem like there are two equally uh acceptable viewpoints and that's like a huge way that media in general has gotten watered down over the last decade or so but it's super evident in the wwe right now that no one is selling the way that bobby sold for dusty and that he did for monsoon before that though i think if we give them time renee and Corey will be able to do it because of the dynamic of renee's character which is like objective on some level but also having her favorites where like Corey has that i have people i like and dislike which is a really good idea for a new version of that heel commentator but doesn't quite have that bobby or and and she doesn't quite have that dusty thing of like you believe them because they're them and i don't think you could recreate in terms of pure talent that booth is the best booth ever it just is like tony shivani is the top three or four play-by-play guy and heenan's number one or number one a in terms of heel commentator uh color commentator and i think dusty when he was rolling even stupid shit like Belly Welly, which is like... I've been thinking that for like the last 10 minutes, Nick. I've been thinking about when is one of us going to say Belly Welly? Belly Welly. Or Bicycle. 
<laughs> yeah, there's he does stupid shit, but it's it's uh, when he's bad, it's almost like watching a good bad movie. Oh, definitely, definitely, and and to to connect back to something that you said before when you were talking about like the NWO angle before he turned is that he was really good at telling you in the show when it was okay to have fun. And I know that some wrestlers were frustrated, like people who he saw as mid card or people who he saw as less important, but like he would be kind of like joking around a little bit, but he was always sure to like give you that different tone or that different messaging to help you understand that something was really important. So when the guy picked up the bicycle and threw it at the other guy during the hardcore match, like that's okay to kind of make fun of because that's silly. But then when you get to the super personal, you know, main event blood feud later on, he switches into serious mode as well. And again, I think that that calibration is, is, is something that, that could be brought back to some degree that like right now the, the, there's levity and then there's like attempts at seriousness, but they're not clearly defined enough that like the levity doesn't seem light enough and the seriousness doesn't seem serious enough because they're, they're getting muddy somewhere in the middle. You, you, so when WCW dissolves, right? He kind of he kind of lives in shame in Florida for a couple of years, running his own company. Like I think that he was really living in the fallen castle that was rotting around him. Like whatever literary metaphor you want to use, like I think he was very much someone who had been extremely important for so long, and now was being told and maybe felt himself that he wasn't important anymore. I think that those years directly after WCW were pretty tough. Yeah. Time. And I think that's the, uh, that's kind of what I was, I was driving at before is this idea that like people think like from the time he left W basically the time he went to WWF through essentially before NXT, he was kind of, it was kind of like this entire dark period. But when I think people are thinking of is the post WCW pre NXT era where it's just like, he's not doing anything of any importance and he's just showing up as Dusty Rhodes, the American dream TM. Yeah, absolutely. I think you can definitely see that in like some of the early days of TNA when they were just kind of trying to tie themselves to the NWA and kind of rally around this idea of pre-Vince wrestling. They definitely ran him out as a figurehead for that. But I think, once again, I think that, you know, people who have been the center of the show and are also very good writers. They're usually always the best at writing for when they're kind of the center of the show. And I think that TNA was a perfect example of like Dusty was there and I'm sure he was contributing good ideas and helping people get over. But at the same time, I think that he was still struggling to embrace, you know, uh, being the party planner at someone else's wedding. Like he wanted it to be his wedding every night. So I think by the time he gets to FCW and then later NXT, he really was someone where we think of him now as this lionized figure. But I think a lot of that is because our recent perceptions of him are filtered through people who he really helped at a time in his life where he had been truly humbled and like was just desperate to contribute to something that he had once been the very center of. And like, we have this lionized portrayal of him as this great guy who wanted to help everybody out because of that. But like, on the other hand, I think that he had to swallow several extremely bitter pills to get to the level where he was in the right headspace to be really good at that. Yeah. Time. And I think that long-term his defining legacy will be the NXT, like the people he brought through, I think there is a reverence for the NXT version of Dusty that if that doesn't happen and, and he passes away the, the way he did very suddenly and pretty tragically, um, it's it's a completely different... We're looking at him in a completely different light as this like tragic fallen figure and not like a cornerstone of modern wrestling. And I think that's like what's incredible about NXT is it kind of like solidifies him as like one of the the Mount Rushmore of along with I think Vince and some other people. I think it's him and Vince and then you can figure out the other two. But in terms of guys who 
made the people who made the business what it is today. It's it's those two and a bunch of other people that aren't as high on the ladder. And it's because he came back around and redefined what it meant to be a WWE superstar by redefining like using the old definition of like this is how you build a character and this is how you do stuff okay so for this um this week's question although the timeline of when he was booker is kind of convoluted and they change from a straight booker to more of a booking committee my question is this in the post jcp era until his death who do you think that Dusty could have made the biggest star out of anybody available at any point between 1988, let's say, and 2018. Well, I think I'm going to go with the obvious answer here, so I apologize for being obvious, but I'll uh, zero in on one specific facet to uh, to keep it interesting. So the obvious answer who we've talked about is Steve Austin, and it's interesting because like you talked about how like Dusty was kind of a part of WCW missing out on Steve Austin. But, like, let's suppose that Dusty came to work as the booker in WWE after Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara left. So let's say early SmackDown era, uh, Dusty Rhodes is coming over to be the booker in the WWE. I would have loved to see him book uh, Steve Austin's return from getting hit with the car because... Uh, Dusty was so good at those heavy, super personal angles, whether it was, you know, him getting jumped in the parking lot, him getting beaten up in the cage, uh, Barry Windham's hand getting slammed in the car door, like all those great Dusty Rhodes heavy angles. He was so good at, at getting that baby face all fired up and righteous and ready to come back. So uh, as I was listening to the, uh, the uh, Pritchard show uh, discussion of Rikishi that went up uh, last week, I was thinking to myself, like, geez, can you imagine if they had had, like, a really good, really capable, really together booker at that time, what that could have been? And I think Dusty would have been the perfect guy to to marry Austin to the right person or the right gang of people who'd done this to him and, and really take him on a journey that, that really made him even bigger. Because I always say that, you know, Austin was just so huge and, and so great in, like, 97, 98. But honestly... Everything after he comes back to me is just, it's just kind of a step down. Like it feels like Steve Austin on cruise control, or it feels like Steve Austin uh, being, being told he can only do certain things because of his new physical limitations. And I think if Dusty had been there, Dusty would have had material that even if Austin, you know, couldn't work, even if he was super limited physically, I think Dusty would have had just a grade material for him to really be out there just getting revenge and kicking ass. So I'm going with the obvious answer, Steve Austin, uh, but I'm making my obvious answer a little interesting by pinpointing specifically, I want Dusty to book Austin's comeback from being hit by the car. He he did it for the rock though, Dave. He did it for the people. That's why Rikishi did it. Wait though, I thought- the, the, I did the, it for the, the rock. I did it for the people all that time. I didn't think of an answer. No, I'm kidding. No, um, Bailey. I think Bailey would be a multiple time world women's world champion right now if they actually like let him book her when she came to WWE because that is he is that is a dusty character in a very literal direct sense, and, mm-hmm. and I think either her or I'm going to focus on her or Finn Balor. Because I think they both have that like that thing that Dusty had, which is they're not obviously Finn Balor's a comically attractive person, like like a superhero in terms of attractiveness. Um, but he's not he does, he's not a big guy. He's an ordinary guy who does extraordinary things, right? Like um, I think with Bailey, it's even more so. She is very much in every person and every woman kind of character and i think he he understood that and that's what made her and you look at what happened when she was in nxt like that carrying over to the main roster i think would have made such a fundamental difference in her career where she's not the second fiddle in a tag team with sasha banks and she's not a second fiddle in a tag team with finn uh, mixed tag team mixed tag team challenge partnership 
that's the word I was looking for, with Finn Balor, which are both, like, good. I really like those. But she should be at the Becky Lynch, Charlotte Flair, Ronda Rousey level in terms of what she did in NXT. Not just in terms of how over she was, but in terms of the actual quality of work. And we just don't... I thought she's been better than most people think she's been on the main roster. I think she's, A, been given crap, which I don't think anybody's arguing with. And B, I think it's just, like, they don't know what to do with a babyface on that level. And I think Dusty would have been able to figure it out. Yeah, I think that is a spectacular call. That's a good one. I mean, she's someone where, like, just like Dusty, where it's all about authenticity and it's all about, like, genuine identification. And I guess it's no wonder why she hasn't been super successful on the main roster because Vince McMahon doesn't believe in authenticity and he believes that wrestlers should be like these larger-than-life hyper-motivated figures that real people like can't identify with. And it's worked so well for so long, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're getting some of the world's finest people, you know, paying good money to have you come promote a show in their country. <laughs> uh, fucking... Jesus Christ. Um, so, yeah. Um, do you have anything to plug this week, David? Oh, of course. As usual, I, I've got the plugs. Uh, the first thing I want to say is in lieu of a traditional plug for patreon.com slash HWETW, uh, I want to do something a little different this week, which is rather than just, you know, aggressively telling you that you need to give us your money, uh, I just want to talk a little bit about like why I really believe in Patreon, like outside of us. Um, I am someone who I don't just ask people for money on Patreon. I am a patron of, of several creators in the wrestling sphere. Um, in fact, earlier you heard me tell the story of uh, Dick Murdoch and the Phantom Motorcycle killing the town uh, in the Bahamas. And I would not know that story uh, if not for Ron Fuller. So like Ron Fuller's Studcast, I am a patron of that show. And I, uh, I find it an honor to, to send them my money every month uh, just because, uh, you know, I feel like I'm actually contributing to a show that's, it's not just about feeding the dialogue or it's not just about, you know, formulating the hottest take or the most sizzling, sexy reaction to what's going on. It's actually talking about real stuff and talking about just the nuts and bolts of, of wrestling, both mechanically and thematically. Not like necessarily what you see on this show, but, but something that's really special and unique. So I'm a, I'm a proud supporter of them on Patreon. And uh, I will say that, uh, that, you know, I might be asking you for $2, but I am sending others $2. I'm also a proud patron of uh, OSW Review. I won't uh, say the name of their patron group uh, for obvious reasons, if you know what it is. Uh, I don't approve of that, certainly. But I do approve of their just uh, unique content, and uh, I'm so jealous that they got into that space before Nick and I had the opportunity to. I'm just always in awe of their work. And I think they bring something really unique to wrestling. They bring that nice balance of, you know, talking about the new stuff and also looking through the lens of the old stuff, which of course we appreciate. So like I said, I didn't want to plug patreon.com slash HWETW too directly this week. I didn't want to tell you too hard to reach down in your hearts and your wallets and give us your money. Uh, but I did just want to say, you know, I really believe in this whole Patreon thing and, and Nick does as well. And we're out there supporting other wrestling creators. So we're not just like some big bottomless hole. We're asking you to throw money and, you know, we're, we're out there uh, as, as positive contributors to the, the wrestling society and the dialogue. So therefore you should feel really fucking good about giving us your money. And if you don't, you should feel really shitty about yourself. <laughs> Kidding aside, uh, the Wrestling Estate, last week's roundtable, it went up on Friday. We talked about the history of SmackDown, and uh, I've been watching SmackDown since its very first episode. So you can check out uh, what I thought about SmackDown, some of the most memorable angles, some of the most memorable superstars, matches, moments, etc., etc. So please do check that out over at the Wrestling Estate. And on Twitter, at Dave writes junk, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, if they if they want to, you know, I mean, it's not uh, it's not 2012 anymore. I feel like I haven't had a new follower in like a year. Or so, uh, if, if if someone wants to be my first new follower in a very long time, you can follow me at Dave writes junk. And you can follow me at the Nickster. That's T H E N one C K S T E R. You can check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play Store, and Pocket Casts.
Oh, 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 uh, quick smart ass comment about pocket casts. We do surprisingly well on it. <laughs> Thank you, David. Uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of doing surprisingly well, I swear to God, I am done with the video and it'll be coming out. Dave and I wrote a separate script for it. I think we did a very good job. Uh, I'm just working out some of the kinks um, and uh, you can, in anticipation, subscribe to the YouTube channel to be able to see when it comes out. So uh, yeah, definitely. I was gonna say, I think hypothetically, if you subscribe to that YouTube channel, you could finagle it somehow in the settings. So as soon as it was published, you would get an email about it. And then you could, you could forward that email to, I don't know, three to 2,000 friends to share it forward. Yeah, if, in theory, if that's what you were into, um, which God bless you if you are. Uh, so yeah, uh, we will definitely, and, and going forward, um, we will hopefully have a better schedule for the videos. I apologize. They're just a not insignificant amount of work. So yeah, that's why they've been taking so long. But uh, other than that, um, yeah. Uh, did, did you have anything you wanted to say, Dave? No, I mean, I just I just wanted to put you over for your great and very thorough work on the videos. I mean, you can apologize all you want, but uh, I would prefer to eat the bread of the baker who waited until it was done to pull it out of the oven, regardless of prearranged deadlines that were completely self-imposed anyway. So you do you, kid. We believe in you. Thanks, Dave. Well, David, today I got a few things to address, and so I want everybody to be listening. First of all, I'm going to address the effect of Larry Zabisco and Baby Doll and tell the, the world out there throughout this country that Dusty Rose has never, ever done anything wrong to tarnish the name of the American dream. If you have documents, if you have photos, if you have clues and evidence, if you will, to say that Dusty Rose, the American dream, has ever stepped over the bounds, if you will, then baby doll prove it. And last the best go, if you want the United States Airway title, you have to come get it. Secondly, now, the road warriors, my brother Animal, come out here and talk in a different tone and got right down in your living room and told you what's going to happen to the powers of pain. So powers of pain, you better take that to the bank because when Animal said and Hawk said, then it's a true fact. And then Ric Flair come out here knocking my public. He come out here and he be talking about the way people look, the way they are, and, he, and he's over here and he said, well, Ric Flair, you know what? I'm not a normal looking athlete myself. You know what I'm talking about? I've been in the dens of lions. It's a privilege and an honor to walk out with Ole Anderson, Lex Luger, and the Omnit of all night. Because I'm not a put inside either. You know what I'm talking about? When you knock them, you're knocking me. And let me tell you something, Daddy. I can buy and sell you, Ric Flair. And that's the bottom line. And the other bottom line is, in this wrestling world, I am three times world heavyweight wrestling champion. That's the bottom line. And the other bottom line is, I am the current bull of the woods, if you will. And that makes me the baddest of them all. So, J.J. Dillon, you say you're going to listen to Ole Anderson, Lex Luger, and Dusty Rhodes, and look at us close because you don't know what's going to happen. I'll tell you what's going to happen. Total destruction is going to happen tomorrow night in the Omni. And anybody that don't believe that, they better be coming like it is going to be for the week of heart. The week of heart, if you will. So now I want to say something to my sister in Houston, Texas. Because Ric Flair, my sister, is 6'2 and weighs 280 pounds. And if you're speaking of fat women, you talk about my sister. And she'll come out here and clean your clock. You know what I'm talking about? And turn around and say, man, that was awful good, but it wasn't long enough. You know what I'm talking about, Ric Flair? To be a man, you got to beat the man. Dusty Rose is the man. He is the tall power. He is too sweet to be sour. He is the rap master. There is no other. There is no equal. The man that built the Omni is Dusty Rose. Only Anderson. Let's look up tomorrow night. Let's get funky like a monkey, baby. There's no more to say. We'll be back right after this. Here among the poor, I just pick up all the press and misinformed. Must be I for you to.
to bite your tongue secure. 